My wife, Hannah, and I have just enjoyed and completed a television series that was a courtroom drama, a courtroom drama. And this is a, a, th a theme that you can watch movies or TV shows that are based in courtrooms, and they're filled with uh, excitement and uh, serious moments, and they're compelling, they're rich. All courtroom dramas, they follow a similar pattern. They have kind of a similar pathway through the whole show or through the whole movie. Maybe it's a book. First of all, evidence is gathered. Evidence for a case is gathered. Then a prosecution presents charges against a defendant. At the end of the case, a verdict is determined. This is the, probably the most climactic part, the most exciting, dramatic moment in the series or book. It's when the person hears those fateful words, guilty or not guilty. They're either found guilty of the crime that they're being charged of, or they're found not guilty. And then immediately following this, a judgment is declared and executed some sort of punishment, some fate that this person will face. Our text today follows a similar plot, a similar plot to a courtroom drama. There's evidence, charges, a verdict, and a judgment. We see evidence, charges, a verdict, and a judgment. But before we consider this thrilling chapter in Daniel, let's go one more time to the Lord and ask for His help as we hear from Him in His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we consider Your Word now, that You would cause us to know You more, not just about You, but to know You personally to enter into deeper relationship with You, or relationship for the first time if we don't know You at this point. Lord, I pray that as we see Your power on display in Your judgment in this text, that You would sober us, sober us about the seriousness of our sin. Change us through the preaching of the Word. Convict us of our pride. Show us the things that we might idolize in this life, and remind us that this world is fleeting. But above all, we pray that You would lead us to cherish and delight in Your Son more and more. It's in His wonderful name that we pray. Amen. The main character of Daniel chapter 5 is King Belshazzar. King Belshazzar is the last king of Babylon. If Nebuchadnezzar, who we heard about last week, was the living proof that God is able to humble those who walk in pride, King Belshazzar is the living proof that God reigns over the kingdom of men, and He gives it to whom He wills. For as we'll see, God judges King Belshazzar, and He takes the kingdom away from Belshazzar, and he gives it to another. The central idea of this courtroom drama 
is that God will judge those who stand in proud rebellion against Him, especially those who know better. God will judge those who stand in proud rebellion against Him, especially those who know better. So, as we walk through the drama of this chapter, we'll see this truth unfold in two acts or two parts. Act number one is Belshazzar's blasphemous banquet. Belshazzar's blasphemous banquet, and we see this in verses 1 through 12. Chapter 5 opens with a bang. There's no mention of King Nebuchadnezzar, who's featured so significantly in chapters 1 through 4, but there's a new king, we're told, in Babylon. And the narrator gives us no introduction or explanation. We're simply told that this new king threw a massive party. Even in the rest of Scripture, we're told very little about King Belshazzar. He's not mentioned, in fact, in any other book of the Bible other than Daniel. And he's only mentioned one other time outside of Daniel chapter 5, the chapter that we're looking at tonight. So, we don't know an awful lot about this king. But by the time that the chapter closes, we realize that this is the last night of Belshazzar's life. In our passage, he's identified as Nebuchadnezzar's son, but if your Bible has footnotes like mine does, then it will mention that words like son, can, it can mean a successor, or it could even be a grandson, and even the name, the, the, the title father, it can be used to speak of any kind of descendant of a king or a leader. And so, we've see, we see this in other parts of the Bible. For example, in the New Testament, when we hear about the son of David, Jesus is referred to as the son of David, and we know that He is not the direct uh, first-generation descendant of King David. No, He is a many generations removed from King David. And even as we think about Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham is the father of the nation, but He is the great-great-great-great-grandfather to many of them. So, it's possible that when we are introduced to Belshazzar as the son of King Nebuchadnezzar, it's possible that he literally is his first generation, but most scholars actually think that Belshazzar was more likely the great King Nebuchadnezzar II's grandson. By dating the chapter, we know that about 20 years have passed since King Nebuchadnezzar died, and Belshazzar calls a royal banquet. We hear about this party in verses 1 through 4. It tells us that a great feast was held, hosting a thousand of Belshazzar's lords, and we see the list of attendees repeated twice. The narrator wants to emphasize just how splendorous this, splendorous this gathering was. Not only did 1,000 lords attend, but we're told that wives and concubines or mistresses were there as well. So, there was certainly no social, uh, social distancing at this gathering. Now, we're not told exactly what motivated Belshazzar, but during the party, upon tasting the wine, he commanded that vessels, that's probably cups or bowls of some sort that were made of gold and silver, be brought in to drink from. 
And we're told that these vessels were taken by Nebuchadnezzar from the temple in Jerusalem, and that they were brought to Babylon, and that they were put into the temple of the Babylonian gods. But they hadn't been used in a long time. And Belshazzar calls for them to be brought in and used to drink in praise and homage to their false gods. We can guess that this was probably Belshazzar trying to show off, right? Maybe to seeking, to seeking to impress his guests, or maybe even perhaps to impress the gods of these guests, these gods that they were praising. Maybe he was seeking to invoke some sort of favor from this, these deities, these gods, to give him victory or to help him flourish. But even from the way that the author of Daniel describes it, we, we can already tell that this is not going to work out well for him. Twice the author mentions that the cups were taken out of the temple. And then in verse 3, he says that the temple was the house of God. And already so far, we've seen that God reigns over all in the book of Daniel. And so we know that this is not going to turn out well for Belshazzar. These vessels were dedicated to the service of the Lord's house, so they were holy. And that means that they were devoted entirely to God's use and to nothing else. They were not to be used for common use, only in service to God. But of course, they'd been removed from Jerusalem. They'd been removed from the temple of God, and they had been put in Babylonian God's temples. So they were already defiled, but to use them in this manner, to use them in the worship of other gods would have been incredibly defiling, incredibly unheard of. Using God's holy goblets to toast lifeless idols was combining blasphemy and idolatry. Even the, the way that the scene is described, it makes us see that Belshazzar and his party, what they're doing is, is ominous. There's a dark cloud looming overhead. Look at some of the details as it describes this banquet. It says that the, the banquet guests were reveling in blasphemy and idolatry, and, and look how their gods are described. Simply the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Their gods are nameless. Their gods are lifeless. They're inanimate materials of varying worth or value. And golden vessels are being used to worship golden gods. It's, it's just absurd. It's the height of foolishness and wickedness. Though it didn't appear that way to the crowd who were there in attendance, thousands of people were participating in this. You know, oftentimes worldliness is seductive even to us as believers. We're tempted to think that money or power will secure our futures, or perhaps that the right network of friends, people in high places will satisfy us and protect us. 
We put our trust in things all the time and not in God. So we're not that much better than these people. Just consider this party. The rich and the powerful are there, kings and lords, their equivalent of celebrities, fine food and wine. They're celebrating, they're happy, but none of it would last. Little did they know that their kingdom would crumble before the sun even rose the next day. Brothers and sisters, there's a reminder for us here. The exiles that were in Babylon had been there now for over 60 years. So this means that Daniel is no longer a youth. He's now probably in his 80s. Just imagine how easy and tempting it would have been to assimilate, to, to, to assimilate to the people that were around them, to leverage influence and to gain a standing, to earn respect among these people, and to do so by compromising. We face this same kind of pressure living in a world that is not our home either. As exiles in the world, we are tempted to, 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 to value the glitz and the glamour, we're encouraged to esteem the rich and the famous and the beautiful. It's, it's everywhere. It's when you're checking out and you see the magazine covers in the grocery store. We're tempted to value these things and to even give our hearts to them, to treasure these things of the world and to make them our gods. But we must remember, just like the exiles would have remembered by reading this, that this world is passing away along with all of its desires. And it's at this point in dramatic fashion that God makes an unannounced visit to this idolatrous party. We're told immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. Everyone would have been able to see the light cast on this. They would have seen this miraculous fingers and hands appear and write. And for the Jews, this would be reminiscent of God's hand where His hand showed up and wrote on tablets of stone about His law. Or perhaps even of the people in Egypt, when they described the plagues that took place during the Exodus as, this is the finger of God. King, King Belshazzar turns from revelrous joy to paralyzing fear in an instant, like this. I, I love the way that the CSB captures this. It says, his face turned pale and his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself and his knees knocked together. Belshazzar shouts for the mediums, the Chaldeans, the magicians, the diviners, his wise men to come in, but we already know that they can't answer his problem. We've seen it time and time again already in the book of Daniel. It's hard to believe after the description that I just read for you, but the king is even more alarmed because he doesn't know what the message means, what this writing on the wall is. Everyone is confused, but they all know, they all recognize that whatever it means, it's not a good omen. 
this is not a good sign. Then enters the queen. Most likely the queen mother, because we were told that Belshazzar's wives were already at the party, but this describes the queen entering in. So this may have been even, it could even be King Belshazzar's wife. We know from extra-biblical data that she lived a long, long time, but it could be his daughter, Belshazzar's mum. And the queen reminds him about long-forgotten Daniel. Daniel, whom Nebuchadnezzar had promoted over all the wise men of Babylon, who, because he had an excellent spirit, because he had knowledge and understanding from the gods, was wiser than everyone else in his kingdom. Call him, she says. He can interpret this message for you. Act chapter, uh, Acts, not chapter 1, Act 1, Belshazzar's blasphemous feast, banquet, is the evidence against Belshazzar and the reminder of God's faithful servant who can untangle mysteries, including this writing on the wall. And we turn to Act 2. Enter Daniel. We could title Act 2, Daniel's Declaration of Doom. Daniel's Declaration of Doom, and we see this in verses 13 till the end of the chapter. It begins, then Daniel was brought in before the king. Though Belshazzar's reaction shows he knew that the message wasn't good, little did he realize that he had invited the prosecution to the stand. He'd invited a case to be presented against him. And despite the queen's assurance that Dan is the man for the job, Belshazzar is less confident. He says, I've heard that you can give the interpretations, and if you can read the writing, he says. The king then promises if he can do it, he's going to reward him handsomely. He's going to give him power. He's going to give him a position. He's going to give him wealth, a golden chain, if he can. We get Daniel's answer in verses 17 to 28. Those are very important verses, and so I want to I want you to look closely at verses 17 through 28. First of all, Daniel tells us that he's not interested in receiving gifts or rewards from the king. He knows that the king has really nothing to give him anyway. But before he answers Belshazzar's request with an interpretation of the writing, he delivers a stinging rebuke. He presents charges against Belshazzar. He begins by summarizing the story of chapter 4 and the lesson that God had taught Nebuchadnezzar. If you weren't here last week, this is basically a summary of the sermon from last week. It would be worth going back to listen to that if you didn't hear it. But the main point was loud and clear that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and he sets over it whom he will. Daniel recounts how God had humbled Nebuchadnezzar when he had acted in pride. And then Daniel addresses Belshazzar with a sharp indictment in verses 22 to 23. In just two verses, Daniel uses you or your or yourself 14 times 
He's clearly stressing the severity of Belshazzar's personal guilt against God. And he begins with the heart of the issue. He says, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. All this being chapter 4. But you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. As I mentioned last week from Daniel 4, the lesson was not just for Nebuchadnezzar. It was for all of the living. And Belshazzar should have known. In fact, he did know in some sense. He knew better, but then he defiantly challenged God. He should have humbled himself, but he did just the opposite. He challenged the Most High God. And beginning with pride, Daniel lists the charges against Belshazzar. He says to the sin of pride, he had added blasphemy when he misused what was holy to God in the feast. And to blasphemy, he added the sin of idolatry by praising his lifeless gods and failing to honor the living God. Worshipping gods which do not see or hear or know, rather than the God in whose hand is His breath, that's His life, and who is sovereign over all of His ways. That is the epitome of pride. Before we consider what the verdict was, the final verdict, the writing on the wall, let's think about what we might learn from these charges brought against Belshazzar. First of all, we see that the root of all of Belshazzar's sins was pride in his heart. At the root of all of Belshazzar's sin was pride in his heart. And we saw the same sin of pride in Nebuchadnezzar last week, and we see it here again in his son or grandson. Sinful pride is not something which we need to be taught. I won't need to teach my little daughter, Charlotte, to be proud. She will figure that out all on her own. She'll have inherited that from her father. And we've all inherited it. Each one of us has inherited it from our father, Adam. Adam lifted himself up in pride against the Lord of heaven. He did it in Genesis chapter 3, when he took what God had said was not for him to take, plunging the whole world and all of mankind into sin and death. Brothers and sisters, friends, pride is something every one of us has to deal with. It may manifest in different ways, but it's there in each one of us. And becoming a Christian doesn't magically make pride disappear either. We must be actively identifying pride in our lives, rooting it out, putting it to death, killing it. We need each other in this battle. We need each other's help. Pride actually blinds us to our pride. We're confused. We can't see it very easily on our own. So, one thing that will help you kill your pride is to regularly ask a trusted friend, a fellow church member. Ask them, 
maybe even a spouse, to, to point out where they see sin in your life and ask them even specifically, what actions or words do you see that you suspect are being motivated by pride in my life? Write that question down and ask someone this week, what actions or words do you see that you suspect are being motivated by pride? We can't see each other's hearts perfectly, but we can help one another evaluate our own hearts. So, rather than defend yourself or explain away that situation, take time to consider carefully what they tell you, to wrestle with it. And even just doing this exercise alone will force you to swallow your pride as you ask for correction from others. Just asking this will help kill pride in you. The Apostle James in chapter 4 of his letter tells us that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Pastor Brian uh, quoted that in his prayer. But James goes on, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Humility is submission to God. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. We grow in humility, and we kill pride when we draw near to the Lord, when we actively humble ourselves in submission to Him. Or alternatively, as we see from the example of Belshazzar, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. That's the first thing we learn from the charges brought against Belshazzar. Secondly, we learn that there is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. There is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Belshazzar, in some sense, knew what Nebuchadnezzar had learned about God. Daniel even says to him, though you knew all of this, but Belshazzar failed to learn from it. He knew about God, but he did not know God. He had heard of God's sovereignty over the kings of this earth, but he had not submitted to God's rule or honored God as king. And there is an implicit warning here for us all. Greater knowledge about God is absolutely worthless if it does not lead to greater living for God. Let me say that again. Greater knowledge about God is absolutely worthless if it does not lead to greater living for God. In fact, it's worse than worthless. Knowledge of God without the right response actually makes us more accountable before God. It makes us more guilty if we know about Him, and yet we fail to honor Him. Belshazzar faces swifter and more exacting judgment because he had not learned the lesson from Nebuchadnezzar's example. In fact, he had acted more defiantly than Nebuchadnezzar had. And so, we all have to ask ourselves this sobering question, how are we responding to the truths that we hear and know about God? 
Are we growing in faithfulness to God as a result of the sermons that we hear, of the books that we read, of our time in the Scriptures? Are we becoming more faithful, more godly? J.I. Packer wrote a whole book on what it means to truly know God, not just to know about God. His book, Knowing God, a uh, very uh, creative title, is, uh, is, is an excellent resource. I highly recommend it. would encourage you to read it. It's a challenging book to read, but it's, it's great. And in that book, he tells us that we must learn to measure ourselves not by our knowledge about God, not by our gifts and our responsibilities in the church, but by how we pray, because that reveals if we know God. And what goes on in our hearts? Many of us, I suspect, he says, have no idea how impoverished we are at this level. Let us ask the Lord to show us. This is so sobering. Friends, let me just tell you for myself, I have, I have been to seminary. I went and got a theological degree. I spent years studying under some of the most esteemed godly scholars that there are still living today. And I've had the blessing of sitting for years and years under faithful biblical teaching in the church, faithful sermons. This truth is scary to me. It's sobering. I will be held accountable for what I did with what I have heard and what I have learned about the Lord. And you will too. As we have seen from the example of Daniel and his friends, those who know God best will be models of faithfulness. They are courageous in the face of danger. They are content in the midst of adversity. They aren't lured or enticed by the, the things of this world, and they resist idols to worship God alone. They're brave even in the face of death. Do you want to be like Daniel? Do you want to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? If you do, then you must know the Lord, not just know about Him. Knowing Him intimately, having a relationship with Him, only comes through knowing His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, having rebuked Belshazzar for failing to apply what he knew about God, Daniel finally reveals the mystery of the writing on the wall. This is God's verdict. This is the climactic part of the story. This is God's verdict against Belshazzar and against Babylon. And just like Babylon of old or Babel of old in Genesis, God brought judgment in the form of confused language. Though these words on the wall were actually written in Aramaic, which these wise men would have spoken, they couldn't make sense of them. They couldn't understand the message. The words that were written there form a sequence of measures of weight in decreasing size, biggest to smallest. It begins with minna, then shekel, and then a half shekel. These are weights. And like a riddle or a, a, a confusing, uh, challenging puzzle, their significance needed to be decrypted or solved, unpacked. 
In Aramaic, these same letters, the same letters that are used, the consonants, I should say, for these words can be used with uh, different vowels and they form verbs or actions, which is exactly how Daniel then interprets and explains them in verse 26 through 28. He says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, while this riddle is complex and confusing, the message is loud and clear. God had weighed Belshazzar and the Babylonians. That is, He judged him, and they were found guilty. They were proud and rebellious against Him, and the verdict is read aloud. They're sentenced, and they're found guilty. What is the judgment for their guilt? Death. The kingdom is taken away and given to Darius the Mede that very night. Immediately, he's sentenced. In the rest of the Scriptures, this very night from here in Daniel 5 is used. The the fall of Babylon the Great is used as a pattern, as a picture of the day of final judgment, the day when all will be called before the Lord and the books will be opened, the evidence will be examined and read aloud, and all the living and the dead will be judged for what they have done. When we stand before the judge of all the earth, if we were to stand on our own merit, according to the things that we have said and done and thought, we'd all face the same fate as Belshazzar. We would be found wanting when we were weighed. We have all blasphemed against God's holy name. We have all failed to honor Him with our lives as we ought to. We've all lifted our hearts in pride against Him. Paul, speaking in Romans 1, of all of mankind, says that although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But God, in His great love, in His mercy, in His kindness towards sinners, He sent a Savior. He sent His Son to seek and to save that which was lost. God's own Son took on flesh. He became a man to redeem us from the curse of sin and death, from the guilty verdict that we deserve. The Lord Jesus lived a perfect, guiltless life the one that we all should have lived but have failed to. And He willingly took the verdict of guilty that we all deserve. When He went to the cross, He was made to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God and be counted guiltless. And on the third day, He rose from the grave, showing that justice had been served, the price had been paid in full and it was accepted. On the day that we stand before God, those who humbly accept Christ as their Savior, of them He will say, they are mine. There is no guilt left in them. I have paid for it by my death. Friend, if you are here and you have not accepted this gracious offer of forgiveness, 
let me ask you and encourage you to ask yourself, why? What are you waiting for? The message is clear, the warning is real, and the consequences are eternal. But at the heart, I want to tell you that at the heart of all rejection of God is pride in thinking that you don't need Him or that you know better. Just like Belshazzar, rejection of this, this king is pride. Being unwilling to accept this free gift of God's grace is pride. Being willing to, uh, unwilling to accept that God rules over your life and that you'll give an account to Him is pride. And this passage reminds us that there is no guarantee of tomorrow. So don't wait. Do not wait to respond to this message. Turn in faith and repentance to Him, even today. Belshazzar was feasting one moment, and then the next, the Lord called him to account. Don't wait until God calls you to account. Brothers and sisters, we too are called to live in light of that day, the day of God's judgment. And living in light of that day ought to sober us as we live in this fallen world. But it should also spur us on to fight sin. And it should comfort us as we know that the powers of this world will not stand against our God and King. It should spur us on to faithfulness to Him. King Belshazzar functions as a mirror image of King Nebuchadnezzar. He did not learn the lesson of humility that Nebuchadnezzar had learned. And rather than humble himself by honoring God's sovereign rule, he lifted up his heart in proud rebellion against the Lord of heaven, against the judge of all the earth. And Belshazzar faced his day in court. A great day in court awaits us all. The evidence will be laid out and the prosecution's case will rest and a verdict will be issued. There will only be two outcomes guilty or saved from guilt. For those who, like Belshazzar, lift themselves up, it will be a terrible, terrible day, a day unlike any other day that anyone has ever faced on earth, including the day mentioned in this passage. But for those who have humbly accepted Christ as their Lord, who've been declared righteous, they will be exalted with Him. And rather than beginning with a banquet, banquet and ending in execution, God's people will be welcomed in following the judgment to a feast hosted by the King of Kings. Will you resist the Lord of heaven in proud rebellion, or will you accept His gracious invite with humble submission? Oh, I pray that it will be the latter. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that You would humble us and help us to humble ourselves before Your holiness. Lord, by Your Spirit, would You reveal Yourself to us more and more. 
Help us to behold you with the eyes of faith. Help us to know you, to have relationship with you, to trust you, to depend upon you, to hope in you. And Lord, we pray that we would know you by turning our eyes upon Jesus. Because in him, we behold you. Let us see that the things of this world are strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.